you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Done It's 2017, Deadbeats New year Same host of your favorite podcast. Do you guys remember way back in August when we started this whole podcast adventure? On the very first episode of the show, I asked my comedy partner, Allison Raskin, what my problem is when it comes to money. And this is what she said. You have all this class anxiety. Oh, yeah. That I don't don't think that you should have. Whether or not Allison thinks I should have it, I do struggle with class anxiety. As I've mentioned in so many of the conversations on this podcast, I grew up as the poor kid in a school full of rich kids, and I was there on a scholarship, which was obviously wonderful for me, but scholarships don't necessarily hide the fact that a person can't afford the school they're going to. In fact, sometimes they actually accentuate that reality and add a level of discomfort that the person couldn't have expected. The scholarship covered my tuition, but it didn't mean I could suddenly magically afford the clothes, the cars, the lifestyle of my peers. My mind might have fit in there, but my inability to have a real Tiffany heart bracelet, you guys remember those, was a dead giveaway I didn't actually belong in their world. As usual, a lot of this comes back to family stuff. We also talked way back in that first episode about the way my parents' behavior around money taught me to spend it. But today we're going to talk about how that family dynamic creates our relationship to the idea of money. Because some of my experience in high school had to do with literally having less to spend than the other kids. But the psychological parts of that experience stem from the fact that my parents created an environment where it felt like money was something distant and foreign to us. It was hard to get and even harder to hold on to. It was anything but the sure thing it seemed to be for everyone around me. Or even something that they weren't even required to think about. So this idea about my identity hardened very quickly. Other people lived in this gated community that I wasn't allowed to live in. And the gate was made out of dollar bills and credit cards. Shortly after that first episode of the show, a writer who I love and respect tweeted that it made her feel exposed and anxious because she too has struggled with class anxiety for as long as she could remember. As it turns out, she's someone I was hoping to have on the show anyway. Her name is Ashley C. Ford, and in addition to being the author of tons of incredible essays about race, art, fashion, sexuality, a million other things, she's a development executive at Matter Studios, where she's a voice for change when it comes to a lot of the heinous contract issues for creative people that we've discussed on earlier episodes of this very show. As you're about to hear, Ashley's success was anything but guaranteed. She too grew up on the outside of the gate made out of dollar bills, and is only just beginning to adjust to life on the inside. So, obviously, uh, this isn't the reason I invited you on this podcast, although uh, flattery will get you everywhere. But you um, <laughs> tweeted <laughs> you tweeted about the show, and you said that uh, it made you feel exposed because of class anxiety, which is something that Allison and I touch on in the first episode. Can you explain more of what you meant by that? Oh, absolutely. It was her saying that she had friends who wouldn't go out to eat with her because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to afford it. And you would go because you didn't want it to look like you were afraid you couldn't afford it. Yeah. And that, to me, was like, oh, that's my life. Like, that's the minute I started being 
a social person who hung out with other people outside of like my family was the minute I realized how poor my family was. I was in marching band. I was definitely a band kid. Um, But, you know, the marching band, we go to all the games. You go to all the basketball games. You go to all the football games. And the thing was, you know, like right before halftime was over, because you have to do like a a halftime performance. And then right before halftime is over, you get to go to the concession stand and get food. Mm -hmm. And I almost never had money to get food. But everybody would just go to the concession stand because that's what you did afterward. Mm -hmm. And I would just stand there and every once in a while someone would be like, oh, Ashley, do you want some of this or do you? And I would be like, "Okay," And I would have some, but I never bought anything for the most part. And then it was the same during football season. Everybody would go to Pizza Hut after the game and I would always, you know, maybe show up with like five dollars. And I knew that that meant I could get three breadsticks with cheese. And so that's what I would get every time. And people would be like, you know, you don't want pizza. You don't. And it was like, of course I wanted pizza. Right. But I couldn't afford pizza. You just go, no, I love breadsticks. I love breadsticks. I just love breadsticks. Or I would say stuff like, you know, I always take all the toppings off and just kind of like eat the bread anyway. You know, which also was not true. But it was a thing that I would just say and all these excuses I would make because I wasn't going to not go. I felt like not going was worse than going and being broke. (laughs) Part of me would tell myself, in terms of social stuff, would tell myself, well, I have to pretend that I'm in this standing or I have to pretend because if I don't go, let's say I don't go out that one night and then that's the night that everybody meets Adele and everyone becomes best friends with Adele and I wasn't there. (laughs) See, I don't have that. I don't have... And I never have really had FOMO. Like, that's not a thing that I have. I don't have, like, the fear that I'm going to miss out on something. Um, I I very much sometimes have the fear that by not going out, people think I'm, I think I'm too good to go out oh. or too good to be around them. I've almost always hung out with or found myself in situations with people who had a lot more money than me because I was considered smart. Oh. <laughs> and that's what... That's what happens to little kids who people think are really, really smart is that they segregate you so that you're around all the other really, really smart kids. But all of those kids come from money. I never thought about that. But, yeah, I had an academic scholarship. So I got to go to this particular school and um, and I was in like the honors classes and stuff. And all those kids were the rich kids. It's just what you have access to. You know, they talk about the importance of growing up with a lot of books in the house, growing up with parents who talk to you about certain things, growing up with, you know, if you have a speech problem, your parent can, you know, like pay for you to have speech therapy or occupational therapy or, Mm -hmm. you know, all these other things that essentially help kids rise in a certain fashion in the school system. I, my brother and I just watched a fuck ton of TV. So we were good talkers. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't always have VCRs or anything. So when movies came on, we were like stuck to them and we memorized them because there was no way to like really go back and like rewind. That's how that happened for us. That sort of like we became good talkers and good memorizers. So then I get in the school system and, you know, I'm having these very adult conversations and I'm like a precocious kid. So what do they do? They take me out of my school 
<laughs> which is about 75% like kids, 75% of the kids are on free and reduced lunch. And they ship me half the week to a different school full of white rich kids, at least to me what felt like rich. And, you know, I'm there. I'm the only kid on free and reduced lunch. So the like the lunch ladies don't even know how to deal with me Ugh. when I like come up to the counter for lunch. And it's like it creates a lot of anxiety that never goes away. Can you talk yeah, a little bit more about like the way that your your parents were about money and what lessons kind of yeah. you took from that? From listening to the podcast before. And one way I know that like my upbringing was a little different from yours and that like I think your parents kind of tried to hide Um, money issues, and that was never the case in my house. We were very aware that my mom was doing it all on her own and with not a lot of money. And I didn't realize how little money until I was going to college and having to do my FAFSA by myself because nobody else in my family knew what to do with a FAFSA. Um, Not until then did I realize my mother had been raising four kids by herself on about $30,000 a year. What? What was her job? She worked for the government. She was a confinement officer in the local lockup. What did your dad do? Did you know what his, he wasn't doing child support or anything? Well, my dad's been in prison since I was six months old. Oh. So does the government then say like, oh, well, he... The government says nothing. <laughs> the government says nothing. Let me tell you, there is no. When so, I mean, when somebody goes to prison or goes to jail, um, it is immediately a financial burden on the family. Not just the loss of income, um, but a financial burden. And there's nothing really you can do about that. Like, there's nothing. Uh, my burden whole how? life, my mom. Well, you know, um, you often have to put money on the books, um, what they call like their books of the person who's in prison or jail so that, you know, if they want toothpaste, if they want a new toothbrush, if they want um, to be able to read a magazine, if they want um, to be able to talk on the phone, like any of all of that costs money. And it's a lot, especially for a family that has now lost income. Um, So you just have to either not do it and have really no communication with this person and also sort of leave them without anything. Or you do what you can and you put money on their books and it's a financial burden. And if you want to go visit them, that's a completely other financial burden. Going to visit our dad always meant at least six hours in the car. And six hours in the car there When you get there, you have to leave cell phones, headbands, anything. You have to leave all that stuff in the car. Um, You get inside. You have to have change on you if you want to take a photo with the person there. You're getting probably three hours max to be with them, and then you have to turn around and do a six-hour drive again. And depending on where you are, you might have to stay in a hotel Um, the night that you go see them or the night before or the night after. So it's just like it's money. It's money. You're just bleeding money. Were your parents together still when he went away? Yeah. And so she was giving so she did provide for him as well? A little bit for a little while. I mean, and then very soon that wasn't an option anymore. She didn't have the money. She couldn't do it. 
Um, and in some cases, my dad's family, his brothers or his sister or his father would come in and help out in that way. Um, but, you know, it just it depends. It's hard. And especially with visits and things, my mom didn't visit my dad after we turned after I turned around four. I think that my mom never visited my dad again. And I saw I went and saw him myself when I was 25. And when I went and saw him, no one had been to see him in five years. You know, especially when you have families like mine. I mean, my mom is one of five girls. They all live in the same neighborhood. And so do really all of my cousins, you know, and my siblings. And so when I went away to college, you know, even then, it was like I I didn't see my family unless I came home. Yeah. No one really came and saw me. And part of it is because people don't really, when when you're that insular, people don't really go outside of it because it's safe in that insular and that, that there's a financial safety too. Like the reason I didn't realize my mom was raising four of us on $30,000 a year is because my aunts helped, my grandma helped. You know, we were never without food. To be perfectly honest, we were never without, you know, like a new a couple new pairs of jeans and a couple new shirts or whatever before school started. Yeah. Like we always had things like that and that's because all the family was together, and when one person was struggling, somebody else would help them out. That's why it takes so long to realize. Like, my parents never said no to us either. And then it mm-hmm. took so long for me to be like, you're getting credit card debt. Like, wait a minute. Yeah. Because you just assume when you're a kid, adults must know best. Oh, yeah. I remember the first time I heard the word bankruptcy in my house. You know what I mean? Like, I remember those things, and I remember not knowing what they meant, but knowing that it wasn't okay and something was bad, you know, but no one was ever really talking to me about money and about what to do with money. It was more so like people were talking about the lack of it. As the oldest child, you know, your first thought when someone says something like that is, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to protect my siblings from this. I'm going to have to you know, get a job even though I'm 12. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's like I I'm, something. Yes, I think, I mean, I know you were saying that it's a different situation and it is um, in the specifics, but my, also my my dad was an addict and an alcoholic and wasn't super present. And um, so I think it was like a lot of the parentalizing of you and I as kids, right? Being like, okay, oh, yeah. we are... My therapist calls it spousal surrogate to our parents um, where you become the dad or I become, okay, now, like, who's the next person in this house? I guess Gabby is the father. So what does that mean, like, for worrying about stuff or for, you know, being in charge, feeling in charge of your siblings? I mean, my siblings are great. The thing is, my brother, R.C., who is 14 months younger than me. He's the one that my mom found out she was pregnant with after my dad was already in prison or after he had already been arrested. R.C., when I started college, he got a job at McDonald's, and he's still at McDonald's. And he doesn't hate it. Like, he loves it. He feels like he has, like, his McDonald's family. He always has a second job somewhere else Mm -hmm. where he does, like, a different kind of work, you know. And I think he's happy, you know. Like, I think he's okay with that. And that's totally fine. It's just that sometimes I think like it's one thing to do something because it's like this is just what I want to do and I'm okay with that. It's another thing, I think, to be like, 
well, there's nothing more for me. And I think sometimes my brother traditionally has been really good at convincing himself that there's nothing more for him or nothing better for him Mm -hmm. because so much of our family, while awesome, you know, has pretty much all made the decision to not just stay in like the same city or the same state, but literally in the same neighborhood. You mm-hmm. know? And I think it's hard to see what's possible in that kind of environment. I, I feel like all of us have like these moments that are just like, oh man, that is a, you know, what Oprah calls an aha moment. And mine happens to like start with Oprah, <laughs> which is that I was watching. <laughs> I Like when OWN first launched, I was all over it, right? Like when her network first launched, I was like, this is all, I, I don't even care. I'm just turning it on and I'm not changing the channel. And she had this show called Masterclass. And in the Masterclass, um, one of them she did, she was talking about how one time her grandmother was hanging laundry. And her grandmother said, now, Oprah Gale, you watch me because one day you're going to have to learn how to do this. And Oprah said as like a little girl watching her grandma do this. She thought to herself, no, I won't. Like, it was just like this thing where, like, she didn't say it, but she thought to herself, that's not going to be my life. Like, I just know that that's not. I love that. And I've always had dreams and goals that were bigger than I could reasonably expect for my life. Do you feel obligated to help? I know. I don't know if you listened to episode two. Where I talk about giving money to my sister. But yeah, do you ever yes. feel sort of obligated to help to help them because you're the one who's got it together, quote unquote? Well, that's, you know, that's another way that I felt exposed. Thank you very much, Gabby. When I was listening to the second episode of this podcast is when you were specifically talking about doing that with your sister. Um, I think it was put upon me very early that I would sometimes have to do without so that they could have. Yes. And I was, you know, as a kid at times resentful of that. And so I would just play these like tricks on my brain and be like, you know, oh no, it is actually my pleasure to have like the honor of being like the big sister who takes care of her younger siblings. Mm -hmm. So when my mom would come to me, you know, a week before Christmas and be like, is it okay if you get your Christmas presents late or if we just wait and do something for nice for your birthday and we get the younger kids really nice gifts? Like, is that okay?" I would always be like, of course. Spousal surrogate. Yeah. Like, of course, that's okay." And I think even as an adult now, I still have this tendency you know, to think about what I went without as a kid and never want them to go without anything they want. So you help them now? Anything. I'm like, I would rather help you pay this bill so that you can have good credit, which I do not have. (laughs) You know, I would rather help you pay this bill and you can pay me back later, you know, than to have you not be able to pay this bill on time. So I want to talk about a piece that you wrote for Fusion, the New York mm-hmm. I Love You But You're Bringing Me Down article. I mean, uh, one part is I moved to New York to get ripped off. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, it's it, it's strange because, like, there are some things that I'm like, you know, 
I only get to do this or see this or I've only had this opportunity because I'm in New York. And those things are very clear. What, now, Hamilton? You saw Hamilton? I did see Hamilton. See? So this is the truth. This is- I did see Hamilton at the original cast, and I do think that'll be in my heart forever, Fine. I've got to say. Um, but that's not. <laughs> but that's not the only thing. You know what I mean? Like there are a lot I of know. times when I've been able to do things like, to be perfectly honest, like even the job I have now is sort of in direct relation to like being in New York. Like it absolutely is about being in New York that I have this job. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and in Fort Wayne, Indiana, I can get a really nice four-bedroom house with a nice foundation for under $100,000. The one bedroom my boyfriend and I rent here costs $850 more than the four-bedroom condo I lived in with friends in Indianapolis before I moved here. And I do think I'm actually acclimating a little bit better, but I'm telling you the only reason I'm acclimating better recently, and by recently I mean like in the last two or three months Mm -hmm. is because I now can afford for my boyfriend and I to have our own apartment, which means we no longer have a roommate. Oh, my God. Congratulations. I know. Moving on up over here. (laughs) And I have a job I really like now. But also I have a job that pays me a wage now, like that I can actually live on and feel like a functional person Mm -hmm. and like actually like a financially literate person to be perfectly honest I feel like I have been financially literate so much longer than I've been financially stable and the two things don't necessarily conflate like I think I've had the language I've had the ability I've had the know-how for some time but my circumstances my resources We're not matching the knowledge. And there's an intersection there. There's an intersection where the knowledge has to meet the right kind of resources. And if you don't have those resources, the knowledge is fuck all. I remember, like, having a bunch of money in my checking account and freaking out and not knowing what to do with it. And I suddenly got, like, really paranoid because I was like – because I used to, like, not give a shit. Like, I'd, like, drop my debit card and be like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden my debit card was like, oh, my God, somebody got a hold of this. They could take everything I have. And you're like, and now I actually have something worth losing. I'm at that <laughs> stage before, right now. Whereas before I was like, if somebody robs me, they'd just be practicing. Like, <laughs> it's really, it's like you can try to rob me, I guess. Like, I hope it goes well so that you know. Enjoy your like, Yogurtland card because that's all you're Exactly. Getting. Or something. Like, it was it was just not, you know, a thing. And then, you know, like suddenly there were all these things to worry about because I was actually making some money. And also, like, because my boyfriend and I have completely put our finances together. You like have? Everything. Oh, yeah. How old are you guys? Together. I am 29 and he's 26. Hey. I know. I'm a little <laughs> bit of a cougar. <laughs> So you what? But you guys have been together for a very long time. But you put your finances together. Why? We've been together for three years almost. Will be three years next month. Um, because we have all the same financial goals and plan on being together forever. And 
our partners in like every sense of the word. So for me, it made sense. And I out earn him by a lot. And I, I think if the situations were reversed, actually when the situations are reversed, because they usually are, the only thing anyone has to say to the like usually woman part of that situation is make sure you protect yourself. Make sure you have something of your own. Make sure, you know, even if it's a little something, like you need something of your own. Mm-hmm. But when but when it's a heteronormative relationship and the woman is the one who's out earning the other person by a lot, like there's this difference in perception that like, oh, he must be trying to take advantage of me. But for me, it's, you know, like technically, yes, this money comes in from the jobs and the work that I do. But my life is entwined in his in such a way that it does not make sense for me, for us to have a bunch of separate accounts out there. Um, How does he feel about that? it all in one pot works. You know, I think I got, first of all, let me say I got lucky, right? Because my boyfriend is very, very feminist um, and has been raised in a home where for the past 20 years, his mother has been the breadwinner um, and was also raised in the summers in L.A. with his aunt, who was the president of LACMA, and out-earned everybody (laughs) in his family, like everybody he knew. And he has had like this really amazing life and these really amazing experiences And it has honestly all been because of ambitious women Mm -hmm. (laughs) in his life. You know, like he's very smart and he's amazing. And he's like a really great man. Like I'm never letting him go. Trust me. (laughs) But the big reason why, you know, like I think he's okay with it, you know, as okay as someone can be with it is, you know, that he's used to ambitious and successful women. We have toyed with the idea of him not working because that, to me, would be really helpful. And to be perfectly honest, more helpful than the income that he brings in. It would be, like, way more helpful to have someone who was at home and who was, frankly, helping with a lot of, like, um, the work that I do with, like, speaking and presentations and, you know, consulting Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. Like, having somebody help me with that stuff would to me, be more valuable. Yeah. Uh, But he'll never not work. And he can't not work because he has the, you know, he's gotten the same advice that women have gotten (laughs) when they're with partners who greatly out-earn them, which is that you need to have something for yourself. Just in case. So he needs to be contributing. The way I see it, to be, and I I feel totally fine saying this. I feel like a lot of people are going to be like, she's insane. Um... (laughs) But so much of what I do, it's not that, like, I wouldn't have this job without Kelly. It's not that I wouldn't be able to, like, travel and do speaking engagements and consult and edit and, you know, work on my book. It's not that, like, I wouldn't be able to do those things without Kelly. But Kelly does so many things every day to make my life easier Mm -hmm. that, to me, (laughs) like, it's all valuable and it's all just Part of it. It's the team. Everybody works for the team. It's a team. Mm-hmm. It's everybody works for the team. Yeah. You know, and one of the things when we started dating before we were ever talking about money or like merging accounts or anything, but when we were 
together and exclusive. You know, like we had this conversation because Kelly's always doing nice things where I was like, I feel like I can't keep up with you. I feel like I'll never be able to do as many nice things for you as you do for me. And he blew my mind because he was like, well, we're on the same team. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't, I'm not keeping score because I don't score points against you. Mm-hmm. We're on the same team. And I was like, shit. And I think that sort of just, when it came to time to like do the money thing, it just seemed like the right thing to do for both of us. And it has worked beautifully. Ashley, we are talking a lot about family in this podcast in general, but also um, in this episode and I wanted to ask what in terms of your financial situation and you and Kelly and stuff like that what kind of things would you keep from what you learned growing up and what would you discard there are some things that I would definitely want to keep from my childhood which is like you know the idea that everybody has to help you know what I mean like I never grew up as a kid like with it being like well, we just have to help ourselves, you know, or whatever. It was always like, no, everybody pitches in. Everybody has to help. You know, that's part of being like a team. Like that's part of being like a family team. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that like there are a lot of things you can do without money. <laughs> like a lot of things that you could do without money. I would very much like my kids to spend a lot of time in the library, you know, if I decide to have children. I would want them to spend a lot of time in libraries. I would want them to, you know, join school things, some of them that don't cost money. And not because I'm cheap, but because, like, it's important to do things that are not only representative of how much money you have. And there were a lot of sports and, like, clubs and things that you could only join if, you know, Mm -hmm. your parents had some form of disposable income. And it was a status thing. I don't want my kids to be attached to something like that, you know? I also get the idea that my kids are, would probably be growing up in a much better financial situation than I would, you know? So there are some things that I'd like to you sort of take from the way Kelly was raised, which is to think of everything you have with gratitude, right? Like, Kelly got to do things as a kid. His aunt took him to Egypt, and she took him to London and Paris and Mexico, and she took him to Yosemite and... He got to do so many cool things as a kid that I still haven't gotten to do as an adult. But his family, specifically his mother and his Aunt Mel, raised him always to be, like, extremely grateful and to understand that the things that he had were not necessarily available to every kid he knew and were not necessarily available even to, you know, other kids in his neighborhood. I also want to talk to my kids about money a lot. Kelly's mom talks about money all the time, and I love it. Like, she loves talking about money. She loves talking about saving money. She loves talking about her goals for money. She loves talking about her feelings about money, you know. But it has also made this very awesome situation where Kelly's not scared to talk about money. And he doesn't see it as taboo, and he doesn't see it as tasteless. He doesn't see it as any of those things. He sees talking about money as just necessary and important and actually like a good thing. And I was not raised like that. You know, like I was raised where people were only talking about money and the lack of it, but never really talking about what to do with it. Like I think 
one time my mom was like, you should really protect your credit. And I was like 12. And I was like, okay. What does that mean? I will do my best to protect my credit. Like, I don't know what that means. You know, I didn't know what that meant. And when you're growing up in survival mode, and we were absolutely growing up in survival mode when I was a kid, um, you're not thinking about financial literacy. You know, people think about budgets so much, you know, like, well, if you just budget and it's like, you know what? <laughs> like, you have to have enough money to budget yes. for a budget to work. Yes, exactly. And and so, you know, like, my, it's not necessarily, you know, even growing up that my mom was, quote unquote, bad with money. She just never had enough of it. You know, the only thing I remember my mom buying for herself ever was cigarettes. Like, that was it. Mm-hmm. I never remember her buying anything else for herself. So I want my kids to have the opportunity to see what it's like to work with money and to, like, make money work for you. Money is not always going to be an interesting problem. No. Money is already not an interesting problem. Like, it is something that's there and it's real and I understand it, but it's not interesting. And I would much rather be thinking about and doing things that I find interesting than being in constant pursuit of fixing a money problem. Ugh, it's a tough cycle to get out of, though. It is a really tough cycle to get out of. I think your fear is totally understandable. It's just not sustainable. I know. Like, it's there, and it's going to be there, and it's okay to have that fear. And I totally get it. Like, I'll listen to you on the podcast and I'll be like, fuck, 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 fuck. (laughs) I totally understand what she's saying. Like, I'm right there with her. But it's also like at some point you're going to be like, but I can't keep letting the fear be in the driver's seat in my financial life. Like, the fear is going to ride with you either way. You can't get rid of it and you can't kick it out of the car. But you don't have to let it steer. talking to Ashley because she's just one of the smartest and most grounded people and she's also a person who is extremely honest on social media about money like seriously go follow her at I smash fizzle because she often has the types of conversations on her social media that we have on this show and even since we recorded this interview there's been countless threads on her Twitter that I've been like that would have been such a good thing to talk about It's like almost like an extension of the show to follow Ashley on Twitter. (laughs) I think she's one of the brilliant voices of our time. So get in there early. Get in there on the ground floor. And then you can say that you heard her on this very podcast way back in the day when she's wildly famous and successful. And then people will go, who was Gabby Dunn? And you'll go, doesn't matter. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, and tell all your friends who are also bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who drove BMWs to high school and literally never offered to buy you lunch. Like, it didn't even occur to them. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye!